And as they, oops, there we go. And as they are going, uh, let's spend some time in prayer together. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are worthy of all our praise. Lord, there is so much in the praise in this world that we hear. Much of it for things that are not really very worthy of praise. And some which can seem so important, and yet in the light of who you are, they pale in comparison. And yet, Lord, you also are incredibly generous. Lord, you, it is a wonderful world that you have made. And Lord, we confess that we see disasters taking place in the world. We see violence and crime. And so much of it, Lord, is caused by our own sin and failures. Failures to seek you, to honor you who gave us our very breath. Every breath that we breathe, Lord, is borrowed from you. You give so generously. Lord, uh, we continue to hold up uh, and lift up, Lord, the many in our province who are still out of their homes, some who have many who have also become homeless because of the fires and disasters. Lord, some who have lost their lives trying to save others. Lord, we pray that you would speak into each of the situations. I thank you that you uh, are the God who does provide, who moves people's hearts. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word today, that we would hear from you. For Lord, um, we need to hear from you. And you, Lord, have a word for us. Amen. Just a, a note, everything, school is starting back up this week, right? Uh, for those who are going to school, those who are teaching, and uh, those who are just watching, watching it from the sidelines, I guess, thinking about maybe they used to do that. And uh, we are going to be having uh, small groups, community groups, we call them here at church. Most of those are going to be starting up next week, so next Sunday we are going to profile that, and, uh, and you can see which days of the week and which people are going to be leading groups, and so just to, to be aware of that, it'll have some information also in the weekly newsletter that we send out. If you don't get that, you'd like to, you can go to our website and just sign up once a week. It comes into your inbox, and basically you know what's, what's going on in, uh, during the week, or you can check our website. Well, this is the last sermon in our summer series, so it's still summer today. Okay, just at least in my calculations. And I want to encourage you to uh, read the book by Andrew Wilson. Much of the, my idea, original ideas was based on uh, Andrew Wilson. And there are many things in his book, a whole host of ordinary things in everyday life that point to God that we didn't get to look at. Like pigs, yeah, stones, honey, trees, fruit, viruses, the list goes on. And uh, I have just donated a copy to the library, so it will be available. Whoever wants to get that first, if you want to read that. Well, on this Labor Day weekend, I thought it would be appropriate that we explore work. Work, yes. You might wonder, does your work, does my work matter to God? Is there any connection between our everyday work, whether that's housework, homework, office work, computer work, 
volunteer work. Is there any connection between that and what God does and wants done in the world? Though I didn't realize it till later in my life, my early views of work were shaped mostly by my culture, both by my secular culture and some by my religious culture. When I was young, there happened to be a lot of popular songs that influenced how I understood the purpose of work. You may not realize it. You know, you think, another silly love song. But there's a lot of songs about love and religion and also work. Work has been a popular theme for decades. There are songs about how we hate work. Uh, A Hard Day's Night, made famous by the Beatles, of course. Take this job and shove it, and there are uh, taking care of business. You know, there's many songs, and there's songs about why we need it. You know, work in nine to five, uh, just another manic Monday. There are many songs, and shows about office politics and why so many people hate the thought of Monday morning, unless it's a holiday or you're retired, right? Okay, but. Without realizing it, what I thought about work was influenced by many popular but unbiblical ideas and perspectives. Perhaps you've also been influenced that without realizing, which is why I want to look briefly this morning at some contemporary perspectives on work and then biblical perspectives on work. Contemporary perspective. Well, one of the main ideas that people have is that work is a necessary evil, right? For some people, work is a drain. They dread Monday mornings, forcing themselves to struggle through because they they need a paycheck to pay the bills. Some of you may remember the old Disney Snow White movie and the Seven Dwarves, you know, and they went, you know, to work singing a tune, right? And, uh, Many people go to work mumbling the tune, I owe, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And the truth of the matter is that there are some jobs or parts of jobs that are draining, that feel dehumanizing, that do not fulfill God's design for work. On one occasion in the mid-1920s, when he was developing his famous assembly line, Henry Ford was reported to have bemoaned that all he wanted was a pair of hands to do the work. Well, to be treated as merely a pair of hands is evil. But doing manual work, working with our hands at home or on the job or as a volunteer is not a curse or beneath human dignity. A second contemporary perspective is the opposite of a curse. It is, you know, it is an, an idol. One's identity is, is one's work. You know, some people treat the questions, who are you and what do you do as being like the same thing? Work can be used to shape our sense of value and significance. And so success in the workplace can make me feel like I'm a success. And vice versa, failure in the workplace, and I can feel like a failure. But such a view of work expects of work more than God designed it to have. Too often work becomes an idol. Anthropologists define an idol as anything that defines our self-worth. Anything that becomes the controlling center of our life. 
And this and is the last in a series of priorities to go. That's an idol. As one writer noted, self-fulfillment, that is through work, sounds great in a growing economy when one has a good, well-paying job. But what happens during an economic downturn? Or if you've been earning a paycheck outside your home and then you find yourself at home raising kids, changing diapers, cleaning up messes, it is not uncommon to feel moments of withdrawal. I'm not getting my significance fix anymore. And we begin to question the value of what we're doing. Uh, a third view is that work is a secular activity. In growing up, I think I caught the sacred-secular divide. I'll explain. If you asked many Christians what kind of ministry they are doing, chances are they would give you a list of ministry activities. You know, I teach a Bible study on Tuesday mornings. I volunteer with children's or with youth ministry. Uh, I'm going on a missions trip later this year. And these are all great ministries, and they do matter to God. But what about the place and activity that you spend the biggest part of your life? Work. If we see ministry as only something that we do in church, then we have an impoverished view of our daily work. After all, the average person over the course of their life will spend 88,000 hours on the job. That's a lot. That's just on the job working, right? Dorothy Sayers, great writer, lamented how many churches have, she said, allowed work and faith to become separate departments. And, it is, and then is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing, she says? How can anyone remain interested in a faith which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of a person's life? It is therefore essential that we have a biblical perspective on work, one in which we realize that God is highly interested in our work. He understands the possibilities and frustrations of work. He knows the complexities involved in it, and is also concerned that we balance work and rest, something he himself modeled for us. Well, let's explore some biblical perspectives on work. First, I'll be looking at what I call intrinsic, that is, the very nature of work itself, why it matters, and then instrumental value, what it accomplishes. In a biblical perspective, we know that our work matters to God because God works. God works a lot. In the beginning, God does an incredible amount of work and wears all kind of occupational hats. You read Genesis 1 and you think, wow, he's working as a strategic planner, a designer, a civil engineer, a real estate developer, maybe, project manager, waste manager, and many, many more jobs. I suspect yours is found somewhere in there. The biblical portrait of God as a worker is actually a very stark contrast to the gods of the ancient Near, Near East, 
where work was beneath their dignity. In the other creation stories, people were created to do the work for the gods so that the gods could just rest and relax. The Greek mentality had the same, that work was beneath those in the upper crust. Well, that is not the image of God in the Bible. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. On that particular occasion, it was the work of healing, but Jesus and God's work was not limited to that. You know, Jesus' ministry didn't begin, well, it began in a new, in a new vein, but, you know, his work as a carpenter, as a builder, And in John 14, he will say, you know, I've gone to prepare a place for you. I remember a homemaker opening up and and talking about that verse, those verses, and saying, I found my work and the significance of it here. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. She was right. She was right. He did work caregiver. There are many other kinds of work that God does, that Jesus does. And secondly, God created us in his image to work. Not only does it tell us that God works, it tells us he created us in his image to work. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. So God created male and female, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There's some amazing work for you to do. And in Genesis 2.15, Genesis 1 gives you this big uh, panoramic view of creation and then Genesis 2 kind of zooms in and there's God with his hands in the dirt forming man, human being, out of the humus that is out of the dirt. And then he places him, breathes into him his own breath of life and places him in a garden to work it. Numerous commentators call those, that uh, section in Genesis our cultural commission. That is cultivating, working. And it's given, it's in contrast to the great commission that many Christians know about that Jesus gave us in the New Testament to preach the gospel But the Great Commission never eliminated the Cultural Commission. Both are God-given roles. In both of these, we are called to imitate God and cooperate with what He is doing and once done in the world. A story is told of a farmer who took over, well, a real fixer-upper place. It was abandoned, run-down property, and he worked and worked and worked to fix it up. And after a year of fixing fences, plowing, planting, weeding, Uh, he finally invited the local pastor to come over for a visit. And seeing now the beautiful crops growing and the fixed-up buildings, you know, the pastor remarked, wow, God certainly has given you a wonderful piece of property. And the busy farmer said, well, yes, he has, but you should have seen this place when God had it all to himself (laughs) before I got my hands on it. Well, there's truth. We are workers together with God. Work is intrinsically, by its very nature, important in and of itself. 
Paid work, volunteer work, all kinds of work is an opportunity to use our God-given interests and abilities and opportunities in cooperating with God and being faithful stewards of his creation. Which brings me to the instrumental reasons why work matters. What it accomplishes? Well, through our work, simply put, we love others, ourselves, and God. But first, through our work, we serve people. We serve people. The biblical story of Joseph in Genesis, uh, you know, where he's serving God as the minister of agriculture in Egypt, gives us a window into some of the means that God uses you know, to provide us with our daily bread. Sometimes uh, politicians, well, often politicians take a, a bad rap. But rightly understood, all are important in providing daily bread. Joseph came to understand his work, whether that work was, you know, serving Potiphar in, uh, or when he was, you know, a sla- in slavery for a while, in, in, uh, also in prison, But later, when God liberated from that, he came to understand his work as the means by which he was able to cooperate with God to serve people. Genesis chapter 45. It didn't come to him right away. This was a a growing understanding that the Lord gave him. In in Genesis 45, verses 5 to 7, he is now... Uh, he's now revealed himself to his brothers who are the ones that had sold him into slavery. That reconciliation is a whole story in itself. But he now is telling them, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Why? Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there have been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That's a a big scale work. But in the New Testament, there is a story of Dorcas, Tabitha. Oh, it's gone. Elaine's gone teaching the kids, and I, forgot, I had an illustration to show you. Well, I'll just have to tell you anyways. But in, in Acts, chapter, Acts chapter 9, there's a story of Dorcas or Tabitha. And in that story, Tabitha, she was a woman of the cloth, meaning she did a lot of sewing. And, uh, and she, she dies fairly prematurely, And it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 36 and following, that her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room, and and Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was kind of the next town, two men said, please come here at once. And Peter went with them, and when he arrived and was taken up to to the room where her body had been laid, the widow stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. And uh, in that story, as it goes on, Peter sends them out of the room, he prays, and God brings her back to life. But there was a woman serving God with the gifts and interests and abilities. What I was going to show you was one of the jean blankets that my mother made. Every one of her children, every one of her grandchildren before she passed away 10 years ago. And uh, she made a few in advance because she knew there was still some coming. Uh, would get one of these. 
And it started because she worked in a, in a self-help store, a thrift store. And there was these jeans, and then they were torn and ripped, and they would just throw them away. And she said, I can make something out of that. And she would make squares out of it, and she would turn them into blankets. And when we go to picnics, you know, everybody in the family has got one, and they last a long time. But we are part, each of us, of a vast service network that participates in the kind of work that God does and wants done in the world. Does God clean up messes? All the time. You know, I, I used to not really like crows. I'm still, they're not on my favorite bird list. Okay, I'll admit that. But then I realized, you know what? If we didn't have crows, there would be a lot of mess, you know, that never gets cleaned up. And they just have a knack of taking care of that. They cooperate with what God does and wants done in the world. And when we pick up garbage, we are doing God work as well. Well, we also, through our work, we meet our needs and our family or those who are dependent on us. We meet their needs as well. The Old Testament story of Ruth. Ruth gives us a window into how God provided for the needs of an elderly widow by the name of Naomi. And he provided for her through God's gift of a dedicated and hardworking daughter-in-law. By God's grace, Ruth found, as you read that story, it's only four short chapters, but uh, in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth finds a godly employer in the marketplace of her day when there were a lot of cutthroat business people. And yet she happens, it says, she chanced to chance upon a field belonging to Boaz, who turns out to be a righteous person, who looks after her. And in Hebrew, it literally says chance twice, but it's kind of like, is it really chance? Dumb luck? No. God's hand of providence. And he gave her the opportunity to provide what she needed and also her mother-in-law's needs. When we turn to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, listen to what uh, Paul says to his young apprentice, Timothy. Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. I remember uh, reading this. My sister, she was carrying, carrying a lot for her aging mother-in-law spending a lot of time. And uh, there were some real rough patches in there. And I remember just encouraging her. I'd been reading in 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5 verse 4 says, but if a widow um, has children or grandchildren, these should first learn, should first of all learn to put their own, their religion into practice by caring for their own families and repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. In verse 8, it says, Anyone who does not provide for their own relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I said, but you are practicing what is pleasing to God. And uh, that was a great source of encouragement for, for her. And it is so important because this is what God wants us to do, to meet our needs or our family's needs or those who are dependent upon us. And thirdly, also, through our work, we earn money to help others. In Psalm 37, I was reading that recently, and it presents the righteous. It says, as those, well, first it says the wicked are stingy. They just think about themselves. And the righteous are always generous and lend freely to others. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, 4 verse 28, Paul gives a number of instructions on how to live now that, you know, now that you've become Christians. And he says, you know, those who used to steal, those who have been used to stealing must steal no longer. That's what you don't do, but what you do do is work. Do something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. You ever wonder how Jesus and his disciples could go around for three years just sharing the gospel with other people? How did they get anything to live and to work? I mean, you know, to, how did they have a living? Well, one of the ways that God provided, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 3. Again, this is one of the verses I missed for years, and I remember a sermon on it. I will never forget it. Because i like, how did I miss that verse? This is really important. Jesus had supporters. It said, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Suanna, Susanna, and many others, these women were helping to support them, that is, Jesus and his disciples, out of their own means. There you go. Even Jesus was living on the generosity of others. One of the ways that God was providing his daily bread for him. Well, fourthly, our work matters to God because through our work, we serve and worship God himself. This is priestly work. To worship God, to bring him glory, happens not only when we praise and worship God with our mouths and declare his goodness, but also when we demonstrate it in daily life. In writing to the church at Colossae, the apostle gives us a truly biblical definition of work as ministry. In writing... To many slaves that had come to Christ, Paul challenges them to have a Christian attitude to an understanding of what real ministry is. He says in, in Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ, ultimately, that you are serving. And Paul is saying to them that the Christian life is a full-time occupation. Do what you are doing for God, and you are in full-time ministry. Our call to full-time ministry begins the moment we pray for Jesus to be the Lord, the master of our life. And this includes our daily life and work in the home, school, marketplace, volunteering. Therefore, ministry cannot be restricted to certain occupations or specific church settings. Worship is serving God with our whole being, wherever we are and in whatever we do. I wholeheartedly agree with the Timothy Keller when he said, there will be work in the paradise of the future, just like there was in the paradise of the past. Because God himself takes joy in his work. Don't you? At least sometimes? Eh? Now, I do my day work. There's parts of that work that I love. And then some of the things I like to do on my free time, like make pies. Had a friend who sent me a picture of four fish this week, and I sent him back a picture of four pies that I made on that day. 
and our, uh, our community group leaders were over and we enjoyed one of those on, on Wednesday evening. And uh, this summer, one of the projects, uh, Ariel and Craig, uh, had been over to visit we fellow gardeners seeing their back place and there was this bench, it did not look like that. It, they had said, well, the last time we sat on it, it broke. It's just kind of in piles there. But we'd like to restore it. I said, oh, I like to do some restoration work with wood. And it is a great feeling to, to work at a project and to restore. You know, and God himself, right? Creation all along the way. Pause, stops. Day one, oh, is good. I wonder how he said that. He didn't just say, and it is good. It was good. In paradise, you will be useful in the lives of others, Keller says, to infinite degrees of joy and satisfaction. You will perform with all the skill that you can imagine. Those best moments when you, when creation itself, it says creation itself is groaning. It's not able to fully live out God's designs for it. Because it too has been affected by our sin. But one day, Paul says in Romans 8, it's going to be liberated with us. It is going to be glorious indeed. And we're going to see and participate what God designed work to fully be. I should also talk briefly about rest. Because... I learned a lot about hard work growing up. And then when I was in my mid to late 30s, I crashed. I burned out. Because I knew how to work, but I didn't really know how to rest. And I had to learn other parts of the gospel stories where Jesus says to his disciples, let's get away in a boat, away from our, <laughs> by ourselves. And he makes sure that the disciples, in fact, almost all of the stories with a, involving a boat, they were not fishing. They were resting, getting away. So I know a pastor who uh, got himself a boat and he put a name on the side, called it Urgent Business. And he would tell his administrative assistant, you can just tell them when they call, he's away on urgent business. <laughs> When I was burned out and uh, on kind of a forced sabbatical for a couple, a couple of months, one of the things I did in the evenings, I had time to play games with my kids. And when I went back to work, I at least had bottomed out. I was starting to come back out of depression and burnout. But it's like, that's one of the things I needed to keep doing. I thought I don't have time for that. You have to have time for that. And I also learned that I need mini, mini sabbatical in the midst of a day. So if you show up at noon, I'm usually going to be walking around the neighborhood for at least 15 or 20 minutes. That's my mini sabbatical that I needed in my life because I never want to burn out again. And so we need rest as well. And some of you might wonder also about retirement. This has got to be really brief. There's one verse on retirement in the Bible. And only if you have the right translation. 
I think it has to be an NIV. It's, it's Numbers 8.25. It's about uh, the Levites, and when they get to 50, they can retire from the regular work. That's because the Levites, some of their job was like moving the tabernacle. It was heavy work, right? And then it says, but you can still help, okay? So it's, but like there reaches a point in life that says, you know, don't do all the heavy lifting anymore. But don't buy into a mentality that says, you know, I'm not going to work anymore. You can... You can do lighter work. You can do different work. Uh, you know, you don't have to be driven by work. But uh, if you want some good information, we have brochures in our foyer uh, called Finding Fulfillment in Retirement. And it is a well worth read. If you search that on the, on, online, you can also, our, our conference uh, denomination, put that together. And it's a, a resource that I commend to you. Um, you going to work any differently this week? I hope so. Your, uh, your homework assignment is to figure out how your work, whatever that work is, because you're saying, I'm retired. You still got up this morning. You got dressed. You, you did things this morning. Okay? How does the work that I do Participate with what God does and what's done in the world. I guarantee it, hap it happens. I remember a homemaker, and she discovered those verses in, in Genesis where it says God brought order out of chaos. That's my life. <laughs> and she said, you know, clean up a room and there's chaos. And God, but God continues to bring order out of chaos. Find the connection. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you that you are not on permanent retirement mode. I thank you, Lord, that when we are in the midst of, of work that is dreary and dehumanizing, that it is not what you designed and you came to liberate us, and you came to liberate all of creation from the bondage to futility that we experience at times. And yet, Lord Jesus, you came to show us that you worked with your hands, you did God work, all, every day of your life. And you also taught us to follow God's call in our life, whether it was during the season when you were a carpenter or when it was your season when you were the Messiah, whether it was out of the spotlight or in the spotlight, whether it was doing big things or little things. I thank you that because of what you have done, our work matters. That it is not all just futility, but there is meaning and purpose. And so, Lord, with the psalmist, we pray, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. For your glory. Amen.